0: Well, as we learnt in our preview of the year last week, it's a mugs game to make predictions, but I'm going to make one, which is there's probably going to be a general election this year. It could be as early as May, though as we discussed in last week's episode, we're pretty convinced that it's going to be in the autumn. Rishi Sunak himself says his working assumption is the election will come later in the year. Whenever it happens, if Labour wins and Keir Starmer's party has a double-digit lead in the polls and has had that for two years now, There's going to be an overnight transition to power. Shadow ministers with their small teams will instantly become ministers in charge of thousands of servants. Shadow advisors will wake up, if they've slept at all, as all-powerful special advisors working at the heart of government. And, of course, the leader of the opposition will move from a corner office in Parliament into 10 Downing Street. He'll become prime minister with his hands on the lever of power. With the speed down numbers of world leaders in his Rolodex, yes I am quite old, and with nuclear codes, just a briefcase away. So how do opposition parties prepare for all this? Can they find the time in a year when they're focused on campaigning for the election to come? And what goes wrong if an incoming government doesn't prepare properly? I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. And this is The Expert Factor. Happily, the IFG have a new paper out, which explores the issues connected to transition. So in this episode of The Expert Factor, we too will be well prepared for what lies ahead. Well, let me start with you, Hannah. How unusual is the UK in terms of international comparisons, given the way we transfer power after elections?
1: Very unusual. We're at one extreme in terms of expecting essentially one Prime Minister to leave and the next one to arrive overnight after the election results are announced. If you look at the opposite end of the extreme, you have a country like the US, which has a formalised sort of transitions period, which lasts 70 to 80 days and really provides a lot of time for that transition process, which is, as I say, quite formalised in the US to happen. But almost every other country has at least sort of 10 to 12 days. If you look at countries like Australia, Canada, France, that is much more typical. Something over a week, around a week to two weeks, just to give people enough time to have slept, eaten something and got to the capital city in a sort of sane frame of mind before having to take up those infamous levers of power which uh, I'd love to see at some point in in Downing Street, those levers. (laughs) So, that presents some particular challenges, I would say, for politicians in the UK. It's interesting,
2: these levers. Uh, Keir Starmer referred last week to pulling the growth lever. Oh, yes, uh, that's a well-hidden one, I think. (laughs) It's somewhere in the basement of the Treasury, but I don't think anyone's quite got the riddle of how you achieve uh, access yet. I think we've got to give
0: an honourable mention to the Belgians who usually leave 18 months between their election and actually finding a government, which gives them loads of time to prepare, I suppose. I I think
1: that is the point that in lots of countries, uh, there are coalition negotiations going on after the election results are announced. So there has to be that transitional period.
0: So I, I get the impression from your tone, if nothing else, Hannah, that you're not convinced that the way we do it is the best conceivable way of doing this.
1: I'm not. And I think that the problem is that the swift time frame in terms of, of people having to take over, combined with the attitude which our media take to the idea that any opposition politician might conceivably think at all about being in government before they've actually won an election. The press are so quick to accuse opposition parties of measuring the curtains and being complacent and all these sorts of things that it really puts off politicians. If they weren't superstitious enough about the idea of preparing for government before they've actually won the vote. It's very difficult to to do that preparatory work, which I think is detrimental to good to government in the UK, because actually what you really want is for somebody to come into Downing Street with some well thought through policies, but also some really serious thought having happened about implementation of those policies and how they want government to work, how they want government to be arranged, who's going to be doing what, where, when, what appointments they want to make. And all that stuff is just that much harder in the UK because you haven't got that gap between the election and coming into power and because it's really looked down upon to, to do that preparatory work in the first place.
0: And of course, as, as we discussed last week, the manifestos aren't necessarily the best guide to the detailed policies a government is going to introduce, are they? Because parties tend to be risk averse about putting too much detail in there.
1: Yeah, there's two things about manifestos. They, do, they don't want to put in too much detail because there's there's a litany of histories of people announcing policies during election campaigns and having them picked apart and things going very wrong for them. Theresa May would be a recent example of that. But there's also something with manifestos where there's a tendency to chuck lots of stuff in because actually you want to be able to say as a party, we told the electorate we would do this. It's a manifesto commitment that gives a special status to something in government and it also gives a special status to things you want to legislate for in Parliament because then the Lords uh, aren't going to impose something that was in the manifesto. So parties have to strike that balance between not providing hostages to fortune but also saying they'll do as many things as they can that they might want to do so they've got that legitimacy from the electorate. And this is why another piece of work that the IFG is doing at the moment on the centre of government, one of the the conclusions which I can preview from that is that we really think that you need to move at the start of a a parliament, when you come into government, you need to give some thought to how you are translating your manifesto into actual priorities for government. And you need to communicate those key priorities, those outcomes you want to achieve much more clearly, rather than just working off the basis of your manifesto, which, as we've said, could be quite a a ragbag of uh, different commitments.
0: I hope we can add a drum roll for a preview because I think we should have you know a special sound effect for that. Oh, I don't want you to feel left out of this. So let's talk about the fiscal situation that the government will inherit. There is a, the, the economic circumstances are not, let's say, optimal. They probably won't be optimal when a new government comes to power. To what extent does that constrain them? To what extent does that shape what they're able to do when they
2: come in? Well, to some extent, it depends on the timescales that they're thinking about so if you're in a difficult economic situation you probably want to start to be doing things which will have an impact on economic growth and so on over a period of time but that really does take a period of time and i think it's certainly for the country it'll be a good thing if the new government set off in the expectation that they'd be there for 10 years not five so that uh, they're putting policies in place which take effect over, uh, over a period. So, if you're talking about planning reform, for example, which Keir Starmer has said quite a lot about, well, that will be a good thing to do, in my view. But in terms of its impact on economic growth or house prices or what have you, probably barely beginning to have that effect after five years. These are the sorts of things that take a real while to come in. But the big, the bigger issue that a uh, new government's going to face is that clearly over this parliament, we've had some very big tax increases, partly because we borrowed so much through COVID, partly because actually spending has increased quite a lot over this parliament, particularly on health, partly because we've had the response to the energy price crisis. And yet, penciled into this government's um, spending forecasts are some really very tight outcomes for public spending in the next parliament. That means that uh, if a new Labour government, if, if, if such it be, wants to do anything significant on public services, increasing uh, money to the NHS to get waiting lists down, increasing money to the justice system to get the backlogs down, increasing money into social care, perhaps to raise wages there or, or what have you, they're going to find it really quite difficult Uh, They've got very little scope to borrow more if they're serious about their own fiscal rules. And if they increase taxes, then they're going to be increasing them off a very high base relative to where we've been historically in the UK. Uh, And that then leaves them with some questions about are they going to find areas that they can cut? Are they going to cut the welfare budget? Unlikely from a Labour government, but not impossible. There's not much more they can do on defence, given our international commitments and so on and so on. So they're going to come in with some very constrained options. The question is, do they have anything that they're going to take into the Treasury, as Gordon Brown did back in 1997? So Big Bang Day 2, I think it was, uh, announcing the independence of the uh, Bank of England from the point of view of monetary policy decisions. Is there anything like that, that Rachel Reeves has got hidden in her, in, in her briefcase? Certainly nothing that I'm aware of. And from the perspective of of the
0: IFS, I mean, how much detail about fiscal plans would you like to see a new government sort of revealed to us either during the campaign or straight after coming into power? Do you think we
2: get enough information now? It it depends what you mean, really. I mean, if you look back at 2019, we had two two main parties, two completely different manifestos. I mean, the Labour manifesto had... Piles of detail in it, um, in terms of where they were going to be spending uh, very large amounts of uh, money and quite a lot of detail. Not all of it, I, I think, entirely adding up, but quite a lot of detail in terms of where they would increase taxes. So what you had was what Hannah was just talking about. You had you had a manifesto absolutely chock full. And then on the conservative side, you had a manifesto with remarkably little in it. I mean, you had some promises for new hospitals and extra policemen and, uh, and 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 so on, but really very little in the way of detail. Uh, but I think what you really want from manifestos is is a sense of how the trade offs are going to be made. The trade offs. I mean, is this going to be a, a high tax and high spend party, or is it going to be a low tax? and low spend. If it's going to be low spend, where are the spending cuts going to come from? If it's going to be high tax, where are the tax increases going to going to come from? And I think it's actually that sort of middle level of clarity that we tend to miss, because what you don't tend to have is a government coming in telling you exactly where significant tax rises are going to come from. So, back in 2010, always as soon as they came into office, the Conservatives uh, did a big increase in VAT. Well, that wasn't in their manifesto. If you're going to say you're going to spend more, it'll be good to know where you're going to get the money from, and not pretend, not pretend you can get piles of money from taxing private schools or taxing uh, non-DOMs, but equally, if you're the Conservatives going into the election saying that you're going to take taxes down from their current high, you really can only do that by being even tighter on public services, and then you need some honesty about what that means, how you're going to prioritise that. And that's the level I think we miss.
1: I was just going to say, Anna, that from the opposition point of view, I think there's a distinction between what you would want to see in a manifesto, in terms of the level of detail that the voters need to see, and what work ideally would be happening behind the scenes. Because I think if if you look back again over recent decades, some of the most successful and enduring policies which were introduced when parties came into government things like national minimum wage devolution windfall levy the expansion of academies in 2010 those were all reliant on plans which had been developed you know ideas that had been brought out and in some cases even legislation developed and tested while parties were in opposition and then when they got into government they were able to proceed relatively quickly with those things. I mean, I think you mentioned, Paul, the Independence Bank of England. That was something that Gordon Brown and Ed Balls had worked on quite a lot, I think. Uh, wasn't revealed to anyone ahead of the election. But you can also look at something like the expansion of academy schools, like I said, that Michael Gove brought in in 2010, where they did a lot of the work that was going to be required to do that in opposition. And then the Academies Act was on statute book within, uh, I think, three months of the election or so they were able to show that they had acted quickly to to deliver on that manifesto promise. I should add, though, that of course you don't want too much detail and preparation in advance. You can use an example there, something like universal credit. You know, the, the plans for universal credit had been developed by Ian Duncan Smith and then the Center for Social Justice ahead of the Conservatives coming in. And the firmness and detail of those plans, I think, was then an impediment to their successful implementation once they were in a position to implement them because there wasn't enough flexibility. They'd sorted it through in so much detail that then there were some, some problems. They hadn't fully thought through the sort of questions around implementation and, and, and so on. So I think it's important for oppositions to do enough policy p- preparation uh, uh, while in opposition, but not too much that last point I think is even more
2: true of the Andrew Lansley health reforms where yeah, Lansley had been shadow health secretary for a long time he had built these reforms in a lot of detail he knew exactly what he wanted to do in a way that I think was almost unique in a new secretary of state without engaging the policy makers and, and, and others in the department of health and, and the results really were very very bad indeed
0: so what we're after then is the Goldilocks level of detail not too <laughs> exactly. much Little, just the right amount. Uh, but of course, before, before, com- before the election, the opposition party gets to talk to the civil service, doesn't it, Hannah? I just wondered if you could explain to us what these access talks are, how they work, how effective they are, and so on.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, a, a lot's been discussed about access talks in recent weeks because we're all sort of slightly wondering where they are. It's been reported that Rishi Sunak's now authorised that these talks can begin. That's the first stage. And the next is that Keir Starmer needs to request that they start and that's when they get underway. If you look back at previous planned elections, elections we knew were going to happen, these access talks which were an opportunity for opposition parties to to meet the civil service, to build relationships with the people who may be their opposite numbers if they win the election and to communicate their key priorities. The sort of constitutional conventions around this are a bit unclear about who has to ask and who has to authorise first. It would be a really good thing if those were clarified, but the more important thing is it would be a really good idea for, for Labour to start talking to the civil service. It's not about policy development. It's not about advice in the civil service. It's about the civil service being aware what are the big things that the opposition party would do if they came into power, particularly in terms of things like machinery of government changes, moving the departments around, new priorities where civil service might need to give some prior thoughts to where they want to allocate resources, people and so on. And just building those those relationships, so it's not the be all and end all, but we re- really think that it would be a good idea for those talks to start.
0: What else is it that Keir Starmer needs to be thinking about or doing now ahead of the election and ahead of perhaps forming the next government? Is it just access talks? Or there are there other things? Obviously, he needs to go to the IFG and learn how to be a minister. But apart from that,
1: of course, the access talks are really just the sort of communication aspect of the really important thing we've been discussing, which is the development of, of key policy priorities and crucially, working out the sort of trade-offs between the th- different things that the Labour might want to do in power. So all the different shadow teams will have their things they want to do, but they won't be able to do everything straight away. They'll have to work out what needs legislation, what's going to go in the first King's speech that would happen after an election, and they'll want to think about sequencing that. And all of that will need to be thought about in the light of what message a new government will be giving about what its priorities are, as I said, they, they need to sort of start working up the detail and the thinking about the implementation of those policies. Because Labour has talked about this idea of having mission-led government, there needs to be some discussion with the civil service about what that would mean, potentially some facilitation by the civil service of cross-cutting access talks so that different departments are brought in to talk about some of these missions which Keir Starmer has announced, which cut across several different departments. And then I think a really important thing is something that Keir Starmer needs not to do between now and election, which is have a reshuffle, because previous work that we've done has shown that ministers are more effective the longer they have shadowed a role before they go into government. So if he wants really effective ministers, should Labour win, then he should leave them all in place.
2: Do you think he'll take them pretty much wholesale? I mean, if he doesn't have a a um, reshuffle, I mean, will, will will the current set of shadow ministers move pretty much wholesale into their departments they're currently shadowing?
1: Well, I think that would always be the intention, but it depends a bit on the election result, doesn't it? I mean, not everybody may win their seat necessarily, and that there can sometimes be an unforeseen reason why somebody has to drop out of the of the shadow cabinet between uh it being created and and the aftermath of the election. And that can really mess things up, to be honest. There are instances where just one person no longer being available has meant that other people have been had to be moved around. And that's been quite disruptive. I mean, Labour clearly feels that, you know, it's got a good set of parliamentary candidates on the books who they're hoping will win seats, people who aren't yet MPs, who they are thinking are, are good ministerial candidates. So there's also a question if, even if the current shadow team become the cabinet immediately after a Labour victory how long uh, that remains the case or whether Keir Starmer would look to use some of that newly elected talent shortly into a new parliament. And of course, there's a
0: representational aspect to this as well, isn't there? I mean, if Labour does pretty well in Scotland, they might want to get a Scottish MP in a senior cabinet position for representative purposes. So, there are things that might change. The other part of the election process, of course, Paul, every time is that the IFS costs the manifesto. So firstly, I just want a bit of gossip from you. Do they talk to you ahead of time about this at the IFS? Do they chat with you first or do you just get the document off
2: the press? Yeah, well, I think it's it's a bit of a misnomer to say we cost manifestos. I mean, we clearly... Through the year, we will, um, look at the individual policies as they're, uh, as they're announced. And when the manifestos come out, we will cast our eye over the policies that are proposed and take a view as to whether the numbers that are associated with particular tax changes, for example, make sense and how the tax and spending plans that are often not set out in a huge amount of detail, sometimes are, sometimes aren't, relate to the fiscal rules or the fiscal outcomes that they're suggesting that they want to achieve. I mean, yes, we do talk to the parties beforehand. It's perfectly reasonable, I think, for them to come to us and say – You know, if we said this, what would you say? And we're we're entirely open with them about that, but they certainly don't share all of their thinking with us beforehand on either uh, on either side. But what we're what we're trying to achieve is really to make sure we get the best manifestos possible, in the sense that they make sense, that they are internally consistent in terms of the tax, spend, and uh, and borrowing that they imply, and to really get a sense as to whether the policy proposals therein will actually achieve the intended outcomes. And that's what I think is most important. I think it's for the parties to decide what they want to achieve. But then they need a bit of challenge often on whether what they're saying will really achieve what they want it to achieve.
1: And Alan, will UK in Changing Europe be doing anything on the manifestos this time around? We've all
0: tended to in the past. So yeah, I think the plan is, uh, we usually do this with full fact that we sort of subject them to scrutiny, yes. So I think uh, we will be doing that again this year. I mean, I I must confess, I've never really spent much time thinking about this issue of transition. And the more I think about it, the more I think it is absolutely bonkers. I mean, the whole of this year is going to feel like a long election campaign, and then we're going to have the actual election campaign. It's just, it defies belief that that, the senior figures in political parties can find the time to actually think about what comes next. Is Am I just being very naive there, Hannah, or is that a genuine problem?
1: No, I mean, I think that the Labour Party have been very open about the fact that they are trying to do uh, preparation for government and that they have said that they are working with the Institute for Government on that. And... We always, ahead of any general election, will work with the official opposition to help them understand what it is like to be a minister, how government has changed, what it's like to work with civil service and so on. And, and Labour, as I say, have, have said that they are doing that, that work with us. But I mean, the main thing I'm always struck by is how reticent opposition politicians are to spend time on this because they they do just feel that any moment that they spend preparing for life, uh having won an election might diminish their chances of winning that election. And it's a risk that they don't want to take.
0: There's a sort of superstition, I imagine, amongst some of them, that you don't want to tempt face. Absolutely.
1: Phase. And so I mean you look at the the US system, in the, the US there's a there's a whole apparatus and a staff and a budget set aside to that transition so that having one election, a president can really think th- through and start making their appointments, which of course is a very slow process uh, in the US, which goes on far beyond the transition moment. But they do have a, a lot longer to get their head into the right space, if you think about it that way, and to get their policies prepared before they have the opportunity to start implementing them. And I, I do think that the way we do it in the UK, from the point of view of good government and having people in a really good place to hit the ground running when they get in, is a bit mad. I do have a hunch that whatever happens
0: in the US election this year, the transition is going to be far rockier than maybe people would like. So it'll be interesting to see that. Now, you've both given examples in a sense of the way in which you can over-prepare with the Lansley reforms or with uh, universal credit, that you actually have so much detail that you lack flexibility when you come in. Are there examples we can give of, of oppositions who weren't
2: properly prepared, who were just unprepared, who didn't come in having done the necessary homework? There are various examples, aren't there? I mean, the um, if you look at another education change back in 2010, the so-called Building Schools for the Future program was abolished almost immediately by Michael Gove, and um, this was a capital program that the previous Labour government had in place, which was essentially refurbishing or rebuilding a large part of the education building stock. He took an axe to that almost immediately. I think based on a sort of assumption that I could be, could be done. And it's one of the things he now says he regrets having done. I mean, that was done without adequate thought or preparation. Um, to be honest, I don't know another example I'm going to give certainly of a very badly thought out policy. And I, Hannah, you may be able to help me out as to whether this was prepared in opposition, which was the, essentially the privatization of the probation service, which I think has been generally agreed to have been pretty bad news in terms of its outcome. And I think if you go back to, to 97, it was more that outside of the very small number of things on Labour Party's pledge card, it didn't seem to have very much of a, a, a policy for the rest of government for a while. Partly because they didn't want to spend more than the Conservatives had been planning, so they had very they they set themselves very tight fiscal straitjacket. And again, if you look at Tony Blair's memoirs, he'll talk about this in detail. It took him and them. A long time in government actually to work out what they were all about, what they wanted to achieve, how they wanted to do things, and that was after Blair had been um, you know in Parliament for a lot longer than um, Keir Starmer has been. Had been leader of the opposition for a, a similar sort of period, I guess. But you got a sense actually from Blair and New Labour of a of more of a sort of new vision, as it were, than than you're getting from from Labour at the moment. And I think one of the things that you'll hear from ex-ministers and civil servants is that if you do go into in, into a job in government without a clear set of priorities and a clear sense of direction, then it's very easy to get bogged down and very easy Either not to do very much or to focus on relatively trivial things, you really do need to be clear about where you're trying to go. And I think there are there, there are numerous examples of ministers either going in at the beginning of a government or indeed going in later on through a government not having that and therefore not taking the opportunity that having a, a whole parliament ahead of you potentially gives you. I mean,
1: the main example I draw on in recent memory of a party being unprepared for government is the Lib Dems, of course, in the Coalition years, they didn't expect to, to form part of, of government and they went into their coalition talks with the conservatives and, and won various of their policies that they wanted to implement as, as the price for the, for the coalition arrangements. Things like House of Lords reform and uh, a vote, a, a referendum on proportional representation on, on AV. And both those things, I think, founded potentially because the coalition tried or potentially if you believe the conspiracy theorists on the conservative side deliberately tried to pursue those things too quickly without then doing enough policy thinking and and laying the groundwork. Both those potential policy wins that the Lib Dems were really keen to achieve were lost. And had they known that they were going to end up in coalition and had been able to do really thorough preparatory work ahead of time, then they, they might have got a different outcome.
0: That's really interesting, yes. That's all we have time for this week, I'm afraid. Plenty for the Labour Party in particular to think about. As mentioned, do have a look at that IFG report on how this process works. It's well worth your time. Remember, you can find us at ACAST, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Do subscribe and please do leave us a review. We'd like to know that you haven't had anywhere near enough of experts. We'll be back next week for another deep dive. Please do join us and do get in touch to suggest the type of topics you'd like us to explore. Until then, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from them.
0: See you for the next instalment of The Expert Factor.